Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. We are your hosts. I'm Tyler Stanley. And I'm Gerhard Steuben. Today, we're talking about Origen, one of the most important and controversial figures in early Christianity. The epitome of everything you love and hate about the early church, Origen's got it all. But first, what are we drinking today, Tyler? Today, we're drinking Sam Adams Boston Lager. It's the quintessential, even stereotypical beer. You can't become a beer drinker without first going through a pack of Sam Adams. In the same way, Origen is the stereotypical church father. If you want to get acquainted with patristics, you have to make your way through a few texts from Origen. And once you start to feel disoriented, just take a break and pace yourself. All things in moderation, right? You know who didn't practice moderation? Origen. Origen didn't practice moderation. Leonides looked over the room as his seven young boys slept silently. He tiptoed to each of them, as he often did, planting kisses on their chests and thanking God for such beautiful children. As any good parent, Leonides did his best to provide his children with everything for a good life. He started them out young, teaching them to read Plato and to learn the sciences, math, astronomy, astrology, to think critically and thoroughly, and, first and foremost, to learn and recite the scriptures every day. While typical children found their daily studies irksome and tedious, Leonides' oldest son, Origen, had an unquenchable thirst to study more, to go further up, further in. Leonides kneeled down beside his sleeping son and placed his hand on the boy's chest, feeling it rise and fall. It was as if the divine spirit itself were enshrined inside like a relic being venerated. The proud father moved his hand as he bent down and pressed his lips against the surface of his son's brown skin. Beneath the surface, he felt the faint but quick thumps of his child's heart. Deeper still, he felt that secret divine pulse that gives life to all creation. Aside from a few short-lived local persecutions, life as a Christian in the Roman Empire was relatively peaceful. Years ago, Emperor Trajan had banned Christianity, but Roman soldiers didn't go Christian hunting. Christians were only punished if they were caught refusing to worship the gods. The threat of persecution was always present, but not imminent. Besides, Rome was, as usual, too preoccupied with foreign wars to deal with fringe religious groups like Christians. But things changed when Septimus Severus became emperor. Almost a decade into his reign, Severus had finally halted invading armies, and he turned his attention inward. In the year 202, when Origen was about 17, the emperor sought to unite Rome under the worship of the unconquered sun, or in Latin, Sol Invictus. Whether by imperial decree or, more likely, by renewed nationalistic and religious fervor, the fires of persecution were rekindled against Christians and Jews. According to Eusebius, multitudes gained the crown of martyrdom. Though only the names of a few remain, 
Among them are Perpetua, a 22-year-old noblewoman, and her companion, Felicitas, the mother of a nursing infant. They are put to death in the arena at Carthage. Clement, a Christian teacher and priest in Alexandria, is forced to flee the city, and Origen's own father is taken as prisoner. Emboldened by the cloud of witnesses who had gone before him, Origen resolved within himself to join them, to share in the sufferings of Christ and lose his life for the sake of the gospel. His mother begged him not to put her through the agony of losing a child, especially as her husband sat rotting in a prison cell, but his zeal proved too strong. In a last-ditch effort to save her son, she hid all of his clothing. It finally worked. Apparently, the thought of walking through the streets bare-naked struck more fear in Origen's heart than the thought of being tortured and thrown to lions in the arena. She forced him to think rationally and talked him out of his suicidal quest. But his passion and piety grew only stronger. Leonides sat in his cell, watching as a small square of light created by sunbeams shining through the window made its daily journey from one side of the room to the other. He jumped when the guard barked his name and threw a small scroll between the iron bars into his lap, a letter from his oldest son. Origen wrote something about the blessing Jesus spoke to those who suffer on account of his name, and something about the crown of martyrdom. And finally, he said, take heed not to change your mind on our account. Soon after, the guard barked his name one last time and led Leonides to receive his crown. Years later, after Origen had written works that would last thousands of years and guide the course of church history, he reflected on the death of his father, saying, quote, Having a martyr as a father is no advantage to me unless I live well and bring credit to the nobility of my birth, namely, to his testimony and to the confession which made him illustrious in Christ. End quote. Where once Leonides praised God for having a son who would live to be one of the church's greatest teachers, Origen praised God for a father whose blood would become the seed of that church. His father's land was seized, leaving Origen and his family destitute. But a local, wealthy Christian woman funded his work and provided him a place to live. At the young age of 18, after the Christian teachers had been driven from Alexandria due to persecution, Origen stepped up to take their place. Many of his own students were catechumen, new converts, who needed to be taught more about the Christian way of life before their baptism. He devoted himself to the study of scripture, teaching all who would listen. According to Eusebius, Origen had been teaching grammar and philosophy, but he gave all of that up and gave away all of his grammar and philosophy books so that he could focus every bit of his attention on preparing new believers for baptism. And if you'd like to see what this teaching might have looked like, check out episode 2 on the Didache, which was a guide for catechesis. Everything he writes is saturated with his incredible knowledge of philosophy, and, as we'll discuss later, he believed that grammar was an essential part of understanding scripture. He simply abandoned those pursuits because of his current situation, being the only teacher in Alexandria, he had to devote all of his time to these new believers. Origen took Jesus' teachings literally, choosing only to have one coat and no shoes, refusing the luxuries of comfort. He slept on the ground and his physical health deteriorated as he allowed himself only enough food to survive. 
after a bitter conflict with Demetrius, the bishop of Alexandria. Origen left his hometown and moved to Caesarea, where he was ordained as priest. He spent his later years traveling, studying, writing, and teaching. Many of his students suffered martyrdom, and although Origen narrowly escaped persecution several times, his time eventually came. In the year 249, the Roman Empire found itself under the rule of a new emperor, Decius. Up to this point, the persecution of Christians had been sporadic and localized. Decius issued the first empire-wide persecution of Christians, demanding that all in Rome receive a certificate proving that they had offered sacrifices to the gods. As you can imagine, this put Christians in a difficult place. Captured and thrown into the dungeon, Origen was shackled and tortured, even left for days on end with his body stretched on the rack. In spite of the torture, Origen lived on for a few years. Undaunted and undeterred, he continued writing and teaching until the injuries he had suffered claimed his life, and the son of Leonides too received his crown. I think you uh, forgot part of the story. What? Uh, you know, the uh, the whole the s- the snip, like that. Yeah, oh, like... right, yeah. So Eusebius tells the story of a time when Origen took the Bible a little too literally. In Matthew 19, 12, Jesus says that, quote, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, to which Origen replied, challenge accepted, and proceeded to castrate himself. There are rumors floating around, I have no idea where they come from, that Origen actually used a brick to perform his operation, but I haven't found any reliable source to prove that. Apparently, castration was a capital crime under Roman law, so Origen could have had less expendable body parts cut off had he been caught. Wow, that uh, that takes balls. Yeah, literally. As Tyler mentioned, Origen was extremely well-trained in ancient philosophy, but we may have to reconsider what it is we mean by philosophy if we want to understand Origen. Philosophy in ancient Greece and Rome had a much more practical flavor than the academic discipline we today call philosophy. Philosophy in the ancient West was all about life lived well. And I know what you're thinking. That's inaccurate on two fronts. First, modern philosophy is also about life lived well. Ethics is a branch of modern philosophy, and one whose sole purpose is to help people live morally, part of which is to figure out what morality even means. Other aspects of modern philosophy help people live well, too. Political philosophy is all about reforming and reforming states. Epistemology is about understanding how we think, and thus implicitly to help us think better. And metaphysics is an attempt to think about, and thus live in accordance with, the divine or the supernatural. I get your critique, and I agree, but those are still seen as extremely academic, ivy towerish fields. The popular perception, at least, of modern philosophy is that of a field detached from life. Second, you're probably thinking about ancient Greek speculative types, like Thales who used to argue that magnets have souls, or Parmenides who used to argue that motion is an illusion. They don't seem particularly practical, and, again, point taken, not all ancient philosophers were practically minded. 
but it does still seem like the general bent of ancient Greco-Roman philosophers was practical, was aimed towards the reformation of life. So, with those caveats in place, let's reimagine the way we think about philosophy for a moment. For a great example, take Diogenes of Sinope, or, as he was known then and now, Diogenes the dog. He was the forefather of the Cynic school of philosophy. The word Cynic actually comes from the Greek term for dog, kune. Diogenes, and the philosophical school which accumulated around him, got the name dog as a nickname because he was always barking at the pseudo-morals of his time, always trying to expose the hypocrisy and immorality of ancient Greek customs and social habits. He wanted to do away with conventions and traditions, wanted to strip down all of human life to its natural essence, and wanted nothing, nothing to come between people and living ethically. And he pursued that goal in the most dramatic ways possible. Diogenes primarily thought of virtue as self-sufficiency, or autarkeia, and the rejection of hierarchies and social mores, most seen in his famous boldness of speech, or parousia. And Diogenes was really, really self-sufficient. He did away with anything he could survive without. So Diogenes was famously homeless and slept in a big, decorative bowl statue in the marketplace in Athens. He also owned only a walking stick, a tunic, and a bowl. One day he saw a dog, a real dog this time, drinking water by lapping it up from a stream, and he said to his bowl, And why have I been lugging you around this whole time? Then he threw his bowl away. On the rejection of social mores, Diogenes was well known for saying rude things to his hosts when invited to banquets, for farting publicly, and even masturbating publicly. Once, when people asked why he masturbated in public, he said, If only I could get rid of hunger by rubbing my stomach. This is a super far cry from what we now think of as philosophy. And remember, this guy was the forefather of a philosophical school. This is what an entire branch of philosophy was like, people farting publicly and sleeping in public monuments. As a brief interesting aside, this is actually where we get our modern word cynical from. The cynics used to find fault with the social customs of their day, and so a cynic today is a fault finder. And not only did Diogenes end up creating the cynic school of philosophy, his teachings were eventually handed down from student to student to Zeno, one of the leading lights of the Stoic school of philosophy. That's crazy. This guy, whose whole philosophy was about flaunting social conventions and living dirt poor, is the patriarch of two very influential schools of ancient Greco-Roman philosophy. Why? Because philosophy in ancient Greece and Rome was about the reformation of life. Philosophy was primarily about living. Some metaphysical teaching was obviously involved, some deliberation on the meanings of the words justice, happiness, and truth, but with the intention of right living. And Plato and Socrates are no exception here. The same thing is true with Origen. Origen was very well trained in Greco-Roman philosophy, but it was philosophy with a strong eye towards the reformation of life. Earlier Tyler said that Origen slept on the ground, didn't own shoes, and only ate barely enough to survive. That is precisely because Origen was an ancient philosopher. It is in this sense 
that Eusebius talks about the philosophy of the Christians, and that Origen was rightly pictured as a perfectly philosophical man. For Origen, the life of the mind and the moral life were emphatically and indivisibly one. There should not, could not, be right thinking without right living. Origen's philosophical teaching, and indeed his theological teaching, was meant to lead one to a deeper life of piety and obedience. This, and no less, was Origen's understanding of philosophy. Now, in order to understand Origen's work, we need to understand how he interpreted the Bible. Scholars call his method of interpretation Alexandrian exegesis. That's because the people who really pioneered this method were from Alexandria in North Africa. But lots of people outside of Alexandria did the same thing in a long time before Origen. In fact, let's go back a couple hundred years to a man named Philo of Alexandria. Philo was about 25 years old when Jesus was born and died almost 20 years after Jesus died. He was a devout Jew who loved the Hebrew scriptures, especially the Pentateuch, and wrote over 70 works. But he interpreted scripture with the same method that many Greeks had used with the works of Homer and Hesiod and other Greek myths from as early as the 5th century BCE. As pious, devout worshipers of the gods, those ancient Greeks thought it was sacrilegious to portray those gods as eating their children or chopping off their father's balls. They didn't believe that the gods could actually be so, well, ungodly. So they interpreted Homer's and Hesiod's myths allegorically. They looked for the deeper meaning in the stories. And Philo, as a pious and devout Jew, did much the same thing. He saw two layers of meaning in the sacred text, the literal, which is the plain meaning, and the allegorical, which was a moral or philosophical interpretation of the literal meaning. So, for instance, when he read the story of Abraham's wife, Sarah, telling Abraham to have a son with her slave, Hagar, Philo turned it into a story with a moral and philosophical lesson. He thought, that Sarah symbolized philosophy. Hagar symbolized the studies that prepare one for philosophy. And Abraham is the soul that learns through instruction. So the story is actually an allegory of the preparation of the soul as one receives elementary instruction before moving on to deeper philosophy. Now, fast forward a century or so, and we get to Clement of Alexandria who applied these interpretive techniques through a Christian framework. And we're fairly certain that Clement was Origen's teacher. And Origen really developed Clement's method into a science. And despite Origen's love for scripture, even he admitted that the Bible is not really the most entertaining book to read. And be honest, you know you've said the same thing. Don't try to tell us that Leviticus puts you on the edge of your seat. It's boring as hell. And Homer or Plato may be more compelling as literature, but that's alright, because this is how God works. The majestic uses the mundane. After all, the savior of the world is a homeless Galilean who gets murdered for treason. The greatest story ever told is in a mediocre, often boring book called the Bible. The hidden majesty of that sacred, boring book 
compelled Origen to see that there's more here than meets the eye. Origen had a three-tiered approach to interpreting the Bible, which he associated with the three parts of a person, body, soul, and spirit. The first layer is the literal, which, like the body, is what you see on the surface. The second is the moral aspect associated with the soul, and the third and deepest sense of scripture is the spiritual. And since the Christian is the one whose spirit has been made alive and now communes with the Holy Spirit, only the Christian can discern the spiritual sense of scripture. As you may have already noticed, this begs the question, how do we know the spiritual sense of a passage? When do we take it literally and when do we take it allegorically? And Origen is completely aware of this problem. There's a great passage where Origen explains it in a book he wrote called Against Celsus. Before Origen was born, Celsus wrote a book attacking Christians. You could say he was the Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens of his day. He leveled every attack he could find against Christians. And at one point, Celsus talks about how absurd it is to say that when Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus as a dove, and a voice came from the sky. Where is your proof that this happened? Celsus asks. Origen basically says, look, you aren't going to deny that the Trojan War happened just because Homer talks about mythical gods and goddesses, or the story of Oedipus and Jocasta. You don't have to throw out the whole story just because there's a mythical creature called a sphinx in it. You're a smart guy. You know that sometimes authors take creative license with true stories. You just have to use your brain a little and you'll figure out what's literal and what's symbolic. In his most famous work, On First Principles, Origen says, quote, The careful reader, however, will be in doubt as to certain points, being unable to show without long investigation whether this history so deemed literally occurred or not, and whether the literal meaning of this law is to be observed or not. And therefore, the exact reader must, in obedience to the Savior's injunction to search the scriptures, carefully ascertain how far the literal meaning is true and how far impossible, and so far as he can, trace out by means of similar statements the meaning everywhere scattered through scripture of that which cannot be understood in a literal sense. In other words, if you want to know when to take it literally and when to look for this symbolic meaning, then read your Bible and study history. In another place, Origen writes, quote, you will find in divine scriptures an admixture of that which is apparently not historical in order to exercise the intelligence, especially in John's writings, end quote. Apparently, Origen wasn't a big fan of John. He thought John was a sloppy writer. But he believed that God intentionally inserted into the Bible what he calls stumbling blocks and offenses and impossibilities, which made the Bible inconsistent and contradictory, so that whenever we find these contradictions, we would be enticed to look deeper and find the deeper meaning. Whenever I used to go hiking and came to a fork in the path, my trailmate and I would set up a pile of rocks so that if we got lost, we could find our way back. 
That's what God does by putting such strange things in the Bible. It's God's way of calling us deeper into our faith. You have to pay attention to every detail. This probing and questioning and philosophizing for Origen is part of the Christian journey to perfection. And for Origen and other Alexandrian Christians, the literal meaning of some passages was morally problematic. For instance, in a sermon about the story of the conquest of Joshua, you know, where God commanded him to wage war and slaughter the Canaanites, even down to the women and children and animals, Origen says this, quote, Unless those physical wars bore the figure of spiritual wars, I do not think the books of Jewish history would ever have been handed down by the apostles to the disciples of Christ, who came to teach peace so that they could be read in the churches. For what good was that description of wars to those to whom Jesus says, My peace I give to you, my peace I leave you? In short, knowing that now we do not have to wage physical wars, but that the struggles of the soul have to be exerted against spiritual adversaries, the apostle, just as a military leader, gives an order to the soldiers of Christ, saying, Put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the cunning devices of the devil. And in order for us to have examples of these spiritual wars from deeds of old, he wanted those narratives of exploits to be recited to us in church, so that, if we are spiritual, we may compare spiritual things with spiritual in the things that we hear. In other words, the mature believer will study prayerfully, and will discern what the story really means. Because Christ explicitly tells us not to make war. He tells us to make peace in response to the violence against us. So we cannot read this as God's desire to slaughter people. Instead, this story is really an allegory about destroying our sins right down to the tiniest one. The five armies faced by Joshua represent the five senses which often lead us into temptation. But let's be clear, Origen is not inviting us to make the Bible say whatever we want it to say, although this is actually where his project inevitably leads. Alexandrian exegesis wasn't just completely arbitrarily assigning meanings or taking out parts of the Bible we don't like. Gerhard will talk a little bit more about this in a bit, but despite some of Origen's ideas that we might think are unorthodox, he was remarkably conservative. He would never even think of removing anything the Bible says. Instead, he interprets it based on what the rest of the Bible says. But this is exactly what Christians do today. So when 1 Corinthians says that women can speak in church, and 1 Timothy says that they have to remain silent, we interpret one passage in light of the other. And this isn't so different from what Origen did. But the amazing thing about Origen is that he did it with every single detail, even down to the spelling of the words. So if a word appeared in one story, he would look at that word everywhere else in the Bible and study those stories in order to figure out how it connects to this story. This is where a lot of his allegorical interpretation is worked out. So Origen's system is actually very complex. And one of the central components of allegorical interpretation is etymology, that is, the study of the origin of words. Joseph Leinhard 
writes that, quote, the student of rhetoric in the ancient world learned to read by analyzing a text word by word, pondering each word until every possible illusion and every conceivable relationship had been wrung out of it. That sort of education goes far in explaining Origen's approach to the Bible, which differs so markedly from modern exegesis, end quote. In other words, if you want to understand a passage, you look at each word and compare it with every other word in the Bible and tie all of those passages together to say something deeper. For example, in a sermon on Numbers 33, which tells the story of the Israelites at the beginning of their wanderings through the wilderness, traveling through an area called Sin, Origen says that the Hebrew word Sin translates to either thornbush or temptation. And he goes on to talk about Moses' vision of God and a thornbush, and about how visions can sometimes lead to temptations. But the truth is that the word seen does not mean thornbush or temptation. Origen makes this connection presumably because the word seen sounds similar to the word sine, which means thornbush, and to the word nasa, which means temptation. So he ties this story to another story with similar sounding words. Now again, let's be fair to Origen before you start bad-mouthing him, because some of his principles are still followed to this day by so-called liberal academics and even by staunch conservatives who would completely oppose his rejection of the literal meaning and even the historicity of some of the Bible. Scholars still spend a lot of time looking at the spelling of words and the forms they take. I often read scholars who suggest that biblical authors are playing word games, Sometimes they'll find puns in Hebrew texts, or sometimes they'll say that New Testament authors use similar words to tie their ideas to some Old Testament passages, and perhaps the Alexandrian idea that has had the biggest following even today is the idea that you can read about Jesus in every passage of the Old Testament. Plenty of Christians still think that Song of Solomon is an allegory about Jesus and his relationship to the church. In the tradition I was raised, my pastors always tried to find the message of the death and resurrection of Christ inside of Old Testament texts. If your sermon didn't somehow tie the Old Testament to Jesus on the cross, then you have not preached the Bible rightly. And one common thought is that Jesus appears all throughout the Old Testament in the form of an angel. And the way you can tell whether or not it's just a normal angel or if it's Jesus is by seeing if the word the is present. If the text says an angel, then it's just an angel. But if the text says the angel, then it's Jesus. That's not so different from what Origen was doing. So, I'm sure all of this was an information overload, but we wanted to be thorough because Origen gets a really bad rap for making outrageous allegories out of the text. And while it's true that his allegories could get ridiculous, I think most people just dismiss him without taking the time to figure out what he's doing. When you take the time to see how he works, it's nothing short of breathtaking. Origen completely revolutionized the way we approach scripture. Eventually, in the 4th century, there was a big push to get rid of the allegorical method of Origen. And we'll talk more about that in the upcoming episode about John Chrysostom. 
And while most of us will agree with the criticisms against Origen's methods, we can and should still appreciate and find inspiration in his complete and uncompromising dedication to understanding scripture. With the incredible mind that Origen had, as Tyler discussed earlier, it's no surprise that Origen wrote tons, tons and tons, stacks on stacks worth of books. Origen wrote commentaries, apologetics, and this is really crazy, both Christianity's first systematic theology and the first critical edition of Christian scripture. Let me explain. So, first, Origen wrote Christianity's first systematic theology. It's called On First Principles, which is De Principis in Latin and Peri Archon in Greek. Unfortunately, not all of the Greek text has survived till today, largely because Origen was copied less after being condemned as a heretic, which we'll talk more about in a bit later. But luckily, a guy named Rufinus made an early Latin translation of it. So if you go pick up a copy of On First Principles, it will probably be based on Rufinus's Latin translation. But enough about the backstory of the book. Let's talk about the book itself. On First Principles is a really magnificent piece of ancient literature, rivaling Augustine's City of God in Length, Ephraim's Hymns in Depth, and Chrysostom's Sermons in Readability. I can't recommend it enough. But you have to know what you're getting into. We already talked a bit about Origen's exegetical method, and that method shines rather brightly in the principles. So modern readers may be put off by Origen's seemingly fanciful readings of scripture to prove his theological points, but just try to put that behind you when you come to the text. One thing about the book that surprised me when I first read it is that Origen was surprisingly conservative and cautious. The picture one gets of Origen by how he's talked about today is that of a wild, free-thinking, free-wheeling, middle-fingers-to-the-orthodox-sky theologian. And that is emphatically not the origin of history. As a case in point, let's take Origen's most historically controversial point, the teaching that eventually got him condemned as a heretic, apocatastasis. Apocatastasis is the idea that all things will eventually be reunited with and reabsorbed back into God, and by all things, I really mean all things. Every rational being in the universe, which for origin meant humans, angels, demons, and Satan himself, but presumably not animals, would eventually be reunited with God. Interestingly, this idea is essentially the same idea as Indian karma, and was formulated by origin as an apologetic move, or a theodicy move. Origen looked around the world and noticed that injustice exists here. Not hard for us today, fresh off the DOJ findings related to the Baltimore Police Department. This is a problem if there is a god and that god is just. How could a just god create a world in which people suffer for no fault of their own? Why does one baby get born into a rich, privileged family and another gets born into poverty and suffering? Neither did anything to deserve their situations in life. Or did they? Origen, who refused to give up on the belief that God was just, thought that perhaps the reason behind injustice in the world is that 
one is born into one's situation as either punishment or reward for one's previous life. That's right, you heard correctly, previous life. Origen believed that his soul, your soul, and every other soul pre-existed the life that it currently finds itself in. So, if you were born into an impoverished and impressed family, that's because you were immoral in your previous life. So you can presumably act more justly in this life so that your next life will be better for you. Imagine with me a person. Let's say her name is Sarah. And she's been progressing through successive lives, one after another, each time being more righteous and therefore earning a better life for herself than the one before. She was an oppressed little orphan at first. Then because she was a good little orphan, she was born into a poor family. Then a rich family. Then a family in the nobility of her little kingdom. Then she was the queen of a little kingdom. And then she was the queen of a big kingdom. Then a giant one. Then Sarah becomes the queen over the entire earth. Or the king of the entire earth, since souls don't have sexes. There's nowhere else for Sarah to go, right? Wrong. If Sarah is righteous enough, she'll become, in her next life, an angel. Then a higher ranking angel. And then an archangel. But if Sarah is a disobedient archangel, she'll begin to fall down the ladder. Down to angel then queen, then poverty, then orphanhood. Then what? Sarah will become a demon, then an even more evil demon. Down and down Sarah spirals, until Sarah becomes Satan himself. That's right, Satan is just one among many rational beings who slides up and down on the hierarchy of being. The fact that one rational soul is Satan now just means that's the most evil soul in existence at the moment. But God never gives up on individuals. All souls can eventually, and all eventually will, ascend the ladder of being right back up to God. And then all souls will be reabsorbed back into God forever. As David A. Michelson, Syrian Christianity scholar at Vanderbilt Divinity School, explains the idea, It is a doctrine of universal restoration in which all creation becomes consubstantial with divinity. That, my friends, is apoctastasis. But you might be thinking, what the hell? You said Origen was surprisingly conservative and cautious. Here's why. He says in Book 1, Chapter 6, Section 1 of On First Principles, quote, Now we ourselves speak on these subjects with great fear and caution, discussing and investigating rather than laying down fixed and certain conclusions. For we have previously pointed out what are the subjects on which clear doctrinal statements must be made, and such statements we made, I think, to the best of our ability, when speaking on the Trinity. Now, however, we are dealing, as well as we can, with subjects that call for discussion, rather than for definition." Unquote. That is, Origen knows that there is not clear biblical teaching on every matter pertaining to Christian doctrine, and so sometimes Christianity must proceed with humble discussion and not presume to lay down definitive claims. Origen knew the difference, or thought he knew the difference, between biblical theology and speculative theology. He knew that firm Christian doctrine was based on scripture, and that speculative theology, however interesting or even true, could not claim to be the authoritative teaching of Christianity. I don't mean he doubted what he said, or believe in his speculations as much as he believed in his more what we would call biblically-based ideas. But Origen knew the human reason is a fallible thing. Origen knew that only the Bible speaks authoritatively to the church. 
ourselves is a matter for humble, self-effacing, open debate. In that sense, though probably not in many others, one might call Origen a biblicist. The Hexapla is also another really important of Origen's texts, but for a completely different reason. Just like Origen was the first church father to write a systematic theology, he was also the first to create a critical edition of scripture. What do I mean by critical edition? Well, for Origen, it meant compiling six different versions of the Old Testament into a single book to make comparing them easier. Think something basically equivalent to those modern Bibles where the NIV and NRSV are put side by side on the same page in separate columns. Origins was a bit more serious than the modern parallel Bibles, though. There were six different versions of the Old Testament, hence the name Hexapla. First came the Hebrew Old Testament, the original language, and then a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew. Weird to include that, in my opinion. And then four different Greek translations of the Old Testament. If you care, it's the Aquila, the Symmachus, the Septuagint, and the Theodosian. Origen presumably did this as a time and effort saving measure, making it easy to review the various versions of the Old Testament so that he could understand the text as accurately as possible. Remember that when you read Origen and his interpretation seems crazy. What's especially interesting about the Hexapla is that it includes a Hebrew Old Testament. Now, that may not sound surprising to you, but that's a really, really big deal in the world of church history. Church mothers and fathers in the West almost never learned Hebrew, and I really mean almost never. In all of Western church history, all the way up to the Reformation era, the only two Western church fathers that I can think of who definitely knew Hebrew were Origen and Jerome. That's huge. It's not without reason that Origen is often called the patron saint of biblical scholarship. In a time when almost no one bothered to learn the original language of the Old Testament, Origen stands in splendid isolation. Again, as crazy as Origen's ideas and interpretations might seem to us, when we read him, we are reading a man with a mind, work ethic, and humanistic impulse almost unique in first millennium Christianity. You'll notice that we haven't called Origen Saint Origen on this episode of the podcast. And that's because, according to the traditional way of talking, Origen wasn't a saint. In fact, According to the Western, especially Catholic, tradition, Origen was a heretic. But how did that happen? As we have talked about this whole time, Origen was like a god among mortals. Origen was the epitome of the ascetic life. Origen remained faithful under persecution. Origen was a master philosopher. Origen essentially created an entire exegetical tradition. And Origen was the church's best biblical scholar until St. John Calvin. Yeah, exactly. Both Origen and Calvin came up with ridiculous interpretations of scripture that we should all reject, and both of their teachings were condemned by the church. By the provincial and sectarian councils of Orange and Constantinople? Sure. But how did this incredible man, incredible almost as much as John Calvin, eventually get disowned by the church he served so well? As you might imagine, there was a lot of shady politicking going on. Tyler mentioned above that Origen was primarily devoted to teaching new converts in Alexandria, and that he eventually had to leave because he had some bitter conflict with Demetrius, the bishop of Alexandria. The story is actually quite interesting. 
Alexandria at the time was suffering some persecution, as we've mentioned, and this meant that most of the Christian teachers in Alexandria had fled. Faced with this problem, and the accompanying problem that new converts to Christianity had no one to guide them in their new faith, Origen began instructing a small band of converts in the Christian life and thought. Demetrius, the bishop of Alexandria, recognized this fact and appointed Origen the head of the Alexandrian church's catechetical school, the school in which new converts learned the elementary truths of the Christian life. As you might imagine, for a mind as impressive and deep and broad as Origen's, teaching basics year after year might get a little boring. Origen wanted to expand, to spend his time studying and writing and learning and debating with more advanced students. So a sort of upper-tier class emerged. Origen taught some students the basics and others advanced truths of Christian life and thought. Eventually, Origen even gave up the lower classes to a student of his, Heraclus, and devoted all of his teaching energy to the advanced class. Demetrius was not happy about this fact. It got really awkward between them, and eventually Origen left for Caesarea, and the entire class of advanced students left with him. Demetrius then appointed Heraclus as the new head of the school, and cut the advanced studies program completely. In Caesarea, Origen was ordained as a priest, and this pissed Demetrius off even more. In the ancient church, it was forbidden for a bishop to ordain someone from another bishop's diocese. As you can imagine, things got worse and worse between Origen and Demetrius. And let me remind you, Alexandria was an incredibly important city in the ancient world. The bishopric of Alexandria was one of the most important church positions in the entire world. In fact, the bishops of Alexandria and Constantinople often fought about who had the second place spot to Rome. I guess ancient Christians, just like modern ones, Forget that Jesus told us never to squabble about who is in a greater position or who has more authority, and instead to take the lowest seat in the position of service. So, when Origen had a war waging with the Alexandrian bishop, he was fighting one of the most powerful figures in ancient Christianity. Even during his lifetime, Origen was beginning to be excluded from the centers of power of Christianity. And after his death, things got worse. In 543, remember that Origen died in 254, and so had been dead for around 300 years, the Bishop of Constantinople convened the Synod of Constantinople, which condemned Origen's teachings as heresy. There were three chief reasons for this condemnation. First, Origen's teaching was condemned for the belief in the pre-existence of the human soul, and indeed, the souls of all rational beings. Earlier, I talked about Origen's idea of apocatastasis, the idea that souls reincarnate from one life to another, and eventually will all be subsumed back into God. A corollary of this belief is obviously that souls pre-exist to the lives they currently lead. If I was once a chicken or a demon, my soul clearly must have existed before the person now called Gerhard Steuben was born. This became really, really controversial in the later church for obvious reasons. The extreme anti-originist faction countered this idea with the idea of soul sleep, a view that survives today in a few Christian circles, which holds that the soul cannot exist without a living body. Therefore God, in a sense, 
hold souls in suspended animation between their death and the future resurrection, at which point God will reunite soul and body to a new, conscious existence. Until the resurrection, the souls are asleep in the sense that they are neither quite awake or alive, but are rather simply waiting for new life at the resurrection. Though soul sleep didn't exactly win the day, the anti-Originist faction did succeed in convincing the bishop and church of Constantinople that the pre-existence of the soul was a heretical perspective. The synod's official document reads as its first anathema, If anyone asserts the fabulous pre-existence of souls, and shall assert the monstrous restoration which follows from it, let him be anathema. Second, Origen's Christology was really controversial in the first millennium church, as it should be. Origen was highly influenced by Plato, who posited a chain of being which began at the highest point with God, and ended with the lowest point, the material world. In between those two poles, the most exalted being, God, and the most base being the physical universe, there was a whole string of existences. As our mentor in patristics, David E. Wilhite, says, God in Plato is a sort of cosmic bubble machine from whom a sort of ladder descends from heaven to earth. In Origen's mind, the sun is not God per se, but is rather the first emanation from the divine source. The word is the first bubble from the machine, you might say. In this first bubble descended the ladder of being all the way down to creation and united itself to a human being, Jesus the Christ. And so, in Jesus, the divine, sort of, word of God, and the human Jesus, these human and divine aspects are united. It goes without saying that this was controversial. But remember, Arius, who said something rather similar to this, hadn't been condemned yet in Origen's time. In Origen's time, there was no Nicene or Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed to tell you that you must say that Jesus both is himself the Son of God and that the Son of God is God, God's self. Origen didn't have Trinitarian language or concepts to fall back on, so Jesus wasn't quite divine. But the Synod of Constantinople in 543 did have Trinitarian language and concepts, and they looked at Origen's Christology and rightly found it lacking. Third, the later church found Origen's ultimate description of post-mortem existence rather troubling, and here again I think the later church was right. Remember the apocatastasis again. You'll recall that the ultimate goal of apocatastasis is union with God. Now ask yourself, is God a physical being? No, God is not physical. And this presents a serious problem. How are physical beings going to be eventually united with a non-physical being? You guessed it, by ditching physicality. You see, in Origen's idea of the ultimate afterlife, there's no real place for the physical resurrection. And that's a really, really important concept in Christian theology. In fact, this is one of the only teachings that the New Testament explicitly calls heretical. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that if you don't believe in the physical resurrection of individual people and of Jesus, then you've departed from authentic Christian teaching. The gospel hinges, for Paul, on the physical resurrection of both individuals and Jesus. But to Origen, the goal is essentially to overcome physicality 
and to be subsumed back into the divine source, into God. Origen would have been rather happy with the way the old hymn goes. Like a bird from these prison bars I've flown, I'll fly away. To Origen, the point of ascending up the chain of being, of reincarnating over and over and going from human to angel to archangel, is eventually to become reunited with God and, I would assume, to lose self-identity. And this will be true of all rational beings, from humans to demons to Satan himself. That, for Origen, is the ultimate good news of the gospel. And the Synod of Constantinople rightly condemned this idea. The gospel is not about transcending physicality, reunion with the divine source, or, I would argue, strict universalism. The Synod of Constantinople recognized this and condemned Origen's teachings. There were many other things that the Synod condemned, like belief that the stars were rational beings, which was itself a popular idea in ancient philosophy, and that there were two types of demons, some the souls of fallen angels and some of fallen humans. But these seem like the big three. It was principally for these that Origen's teaching was condemned. Originism continued on for a while after 543, and Origen is actually seeing a bit of a revival today. But in the mainstream of the Western Church, this marks the beginning of the end for Origen's legacy. So now that you have some background on Origen, you should be able to engage with some of his works without getting totally lost. Gerhard already suggested that you check out his most famous work on first principles, but if you want to start out with something a little lighter and easier to get through, you might start out with some of his homilies. They're usually no more than five or six pages. Joseph Leinhardt's translation of Origen's homilies on the Gospel of Luke is a great place to begin. Check out our website, where we'll tell you how to find some of Origen's works, as well as some resources for those of you who want to dig a little deeper and find the deeper meaning. So now that we've solved the problem of evil, we'll let you go for now. Be sure to check out our website, podcasticapatristica.com, where we always post resources for further reading on the day's text or issue. You'll also find a contact form on the website that you can use to send us questions or make suggestions for further episodes. In the words of Barnabas, Farewell, children of love and peace. May the Lord of glory and all grace be with your spirit. Amen. Amen.